You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. Uh, we're going to be reading from Philippians 1, 9 through 11 in the ESV. Uh, my name is Chad Henderson. I'm with the uh, Bertrand Community Group. Uh, we'll give uh, everybody a couple seconds to get there. But it is, uh, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve uh, what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chad. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. My name's Tanner House. I'm the music pastor here, apparently. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, it's good to be with you. Uh, thank you for attending here with us. There's a connect card in the back on your way out, or you can scan one of those QR codes and let us know how we can connect with you, how we can serve you, how we can get you plugged into the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Gavin will bring you one. And if you're on your phone, we use the ESV. And I have a lot to say today, so we're just going to jump right into it. We're back in Philippians Last week, we looked at Paul and the first eight verses of Philippians, and we see a loving pastor encouraging this young church that he had planted. We see him encouraging this flock to not be discouraged. We see him encouraging them to continue towards unity. He encourages them in their sanctification, their growth in Christ. And what we see, really, is that Paul loves this church. But it isn't a flippant type of love, a purely emotional type of love, some kind of love response like a junk drawer where you love your wife and you also love pizza like that. It's not that kind of love. This is a love with action. This is a love like Christ loves. Paul later in the letter will call them to love one another as well. And through his pastoral prayer today, the implications are that we too are to love one another like this, as believers. So throughout the scriptures, and specifically in our text today, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to call on us to elevate our perception and practice of love. And he's also going to tell us that what we love will be reflected in where our time goes and where our money goes. What we love shows what we value. The assumption in the New Testament is that people who say they are believers value the things of Jesus. So we have this text, and it's going to invite us to also elevate what it means to belong to a church and why that matters. Paul is going to give us three short verses and in these three short verses, he's going to tell us the what we're to do, why we're to do it, and how we are going to accomplish it. And again, I got a lot to say, so we're just going to pray and, and hop in. So, Lord Jesus, we need you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon our hearts our great need for you. Lord, grow in us, stir in us. 
affections for you and affections for one another. Lord, and a love for missions and evangelism in a, in a world that needs the gospel. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you would pray for yourself. That the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed and conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your holy and precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. All right, so these three verses are rounding out for us Paul's greeting to the church of Philippi. What we saw in our text last week was Paul is overflowing with joy and thanksgiving for his friends at this church in Philippi. This is a church that he would have planted 10 to 12 years prior to the time he's writing this letter. And so as Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison, he is brimming with joy. And listen, if anybody has a reason to grumble or complain, it's the Apostle Paul. He is chained to a rotation of prison guards, day and night, every day, awaiting trial. And yet, he's joyful. He's joyful in spite of his circumstances. And his passion for this church, and moreover, his passion for Christ, spills out of him. So may that be a reminder to us. What we fill our lives up with will ultimately spill out of you in the midst of suffering. If you aren't filling your lives up with the things of Jesus, when you are pressed by life, I could almost guarantee then it won't be Christ spewing out of you. It'd be worldliness, not godliness. So Paul, by the work of the Holy Spirit to change Paul and to change what Paul desires, has been filling himself up filling his life up with Christ. And in the midst of hard circumstances, he is overcome with joy and thanksgiving. And this is to God for the gift of the church to him. This joy then leads him to pray. And we have this prayer recorded for us in these three verses. So let's look at verse 9. We're going to take these verses one at a time. Philippians uh, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So what's clear up to this point in the letter and what we see in Acts 16, which is the origin story of the church of Philippi, is that Paul loves this church. And this church loves Paul. And yet... He is praying for them to have more love. He is praying that their love would grow and grow and grow. We see Paul command this type of love in other parts of Scripture. So, for example, we have Romans 12.10. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Then again in Ephesians 5, he says, uh, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But what does this type of love look like? Paul is talking first about the the what. What does Paul want from this church? He wants their love to look like the type of love that Christ has for the church. 
He says in Romans 5.8, but God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we hear the word love, we often conjure up a Images of romantic love, and that certainly can be a part of it. But even within a romantic love, you have to get past the infatuation stages, right? I thought of the movie Elf, the Christmas movie. It's the second best Christmas movie ever behind the Christmas story. You could debate me, but you would be wrong. Um, Buddy the Elf goes to ask this girl Jovi on a date, and he says, You are really beautiful. And I feel really warm when I'm around you, and my tongue swells up. That's cute, right? But that's not the type of love that Paul is exhorting exhorting us to. He's calling us to love, and a love that is inconvenient, and a love that's hard, and a love that's painful. Because that's the type of love that Christ has loved the church with. And this type of love requires sacrifice. It requires placing others' needs above our own. And this isn't natural for us to do. Because we don't want to be inconvenienced. And we don't like hard. And we don't like pain. And we don't like to sacrifice our own wants. Especially just for the benefit of somebody else when we get nothing in return. Right? This type of love requires giving. And actually, this type of love requires dying. To live and love like Christ. We give of ourselves. We die to ourselves. Dying to ourselves and our preferences in order that others may grow in Christ. It requires time, and it requires effort, and it requires you to expect nothing in return. And let's just be honest with ourselves for a second. We could all grow here. Because I don't love like this very often. Even with my wife and my kids, I find myself being so incredibly self-centered. And part of the reason we're like this is that we look at our lives and the people in our lives and we have convinced ourselves that we're at capacity. We're busy. And we may already be carrying a lot of heavy emotional loads and we cannot fathom adding anything else to our plate, let alone loving anyone else or allowing anyone into the mess of our lives or entering into the mess of somebody else. But here's what I'll say. We make decisions based on value. We make decisions based on our values. We plan and structure our lives based on what we value. We spend our money based on what we value. And you can say to me, I value this or I I value that or I value Christ and I value the church. But just consider for a second, where does your time go? Where does your money go? 
Who does your time go to? One of the reasons I am off of social media is because I was giving the majority of my non-work time to those people on my screen. And my family was getting the leftovers. So no, I wasn't too busy. I wasn't too busy to be available for my kids. I just functionally was making the decision to not be. I wasn't valuing my kids or my wife or the Lord. Just made an active decision to value other things. So if your life is too busy or you're too distracted for the very real and present commands of God on your life, to be the church to people who need a physical representation of the church to them in their lives, then church, listen to me. If you're too distracted and too busy, then you are sinfully too distracted and too busy. The other side of the coin is this. You may just want to be disobedient. You may desire to be this type of Christian. Many of us like a very isolated Western existence. We don't want people in our business. And we don't really want to be imposed upon by others. And you kind of want to mind your own business, right? And we have this tension there of wanting to be obedient and wanting to be comfortable. So we just like to do the bare minimum sometimes, if we're honest. I'm reminded of a guy in Scripture who asked Jesus this question. He said, who do I have to love, Jesus? Jesus, I'm really busy. My plate is really full. So Jesus, who is my neighbor? How close can I draw the circle around my life in order that I can look at the sum of my life and know that I have done enough to be obedient to the Bible. Jesus then tells the story of this good Samaritan. That's in Luke 15, if you want to read it. Um, But the implications of that parable are that we should love without distinction. We're to love the poor. We're to love the orphan. We're to love the widow. We're to love the person who doesn't look like us or vote like us or worship like us or worship who we worship. We are called to love. Because, Christian, you have been loved this way. You've been loved this way. God loved his enemies and died for them. So, Christian, you are then to reflect the love of Christ. So this love is twofold. It's meant for all people, but specifically in the immediate context of this prayer, Paul is talking about love for one another within the context of Christian community. As Paul writes this letter to the church, he is acknowledging a couple of things. He is first acknowledging that both he, the apostle, maybe the greatest Christian that ever lived, he and they, the church at Philippi, and by extension, us, We have yet to reach perfection. 
God is still at work in us. Philippians 1.6, we looked at it last week, says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We will not be perfected. We will not be complete. We will not be completely free from sin until the day when we are with Christ in his glory. And this is actually very good news to you. I mean, consider this. Consider for a second just how sinful you are. And then consider how wonderful it is that he began a good work in you at all. And then we're reminded that God is faithful and he will bring us to completion in his time. And in the meantime, we just have an assurance. We can be assured that he is not done with us. And because of this, Christ then is the source of our joy. And as he works in us, he draws us near to him. As we draw near then to him. And that does not give you an excuse to wait and to be idle and to be lazy. That doesn't give you an excuse to not strive for obedience now. In verse 9, Paul acknowledges that the love of God that they have received and that they in turn are then to pour out onto one another is in them. He says, your love, may your love increase. So it's in there to be increased. But again, this, just, this isn't just a feelings-based love. Paul calls our love to grow. But he also calls it to grow in conjunction with knowledge and discernment. So let's start with knowledge. Paul uses this word 15 times in his letters. And what this means when he says knowledge, he's talking about spiritual knowledge. This is knowledge about God. This is knowledge about the things of God. This is knowledge about knowing God and knowing God's will for your life and knowing the word. Jen Wilkins says, the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind doesn't know. Knowing Christ is a privilege. Knowing Christ is a privilege. And knowing Christ is the goal of the Christian life. And knowing Christ is only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. Dr. Hansen rightly says that knowledge of Christ then multiplies love. Listen. Apart from, knowledge, apart from knowledge of God and apart from knowledge of his word, you can't fully love God. And if you can't fully love God, then you can't glorify God in your life, which is the chief goal of creation, to glorify God. You can't do this without knowledge of who God is and his will for your life as revealed in the word. So if you are never in the word on your own, you aren't fully loving God and others the way God has called you to. We need knowledge of God. We need knowledge of God, not only feelings about God in order to rightfully worship him. We get to worship him for who he is and what he's done, and we get to live in biblical community and to serve others rightly. We need knowledge of God for all of that to be accomplished. 
We are called into a family together through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So Tony Marita in his commentary on Philippians, in the discussion of how our love is to grow, invites us all to put our relationships under the authority of Scripture. He says this, What does the Word say about this relationship? What does the Word say about dating and marriage? What does the Word say about loving my enemies? How should I love my friends? How should I love my coworkers? How should I love my classmates? How should I love my kids? How should I love my parents? How should I love the nations? And how should I love the least of these? And then we're to submit to the instructions of the word of God, not to cultural opinions or our own feelings, because love is rooted in the knowledge of God. Love must be tied to truth or it is not loving at all. And here's why. Okay, so I generally don't like to listen to people grind axes against culture. Uh, So I'm going to go ahead and grind an axe against culture for a second, if I may. Um, And I'll also grind this axe against my own theological tribe as well. So hold tight if you disagree with me at first. We live in such a, I'm going to use the word unique. We live in a unique time in history. And it's really not all that unique because if you examine history, you have all of these mighty and powerful nations and these kingdoms, and they have been toppled because of moral decay. So the Roman Empire, for example, was once the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And near the end of the reign of the the Caesars, they became so overly indulgent in sex and sexuality. Sound familiar? Anyways, they also became overly indulgent in decreasing safety for the vulnerable, and they became overly indulgent in violence. I mean, they fed each other to lions strictly for the entertainment value. You ready for my Russell Crowe? Are you not entertained? Thanks. Anyways, I think the uniqueness for our time, though, is that we broadcast our moral decay for the whole world to see. And not only do we broadcast it, but we celebrate it. We champion things that Scripture is fundamentally opposed to. And in the name of love, then, I am supposed to be okay with it. And actually, not only that, I'm supposed to support you in your debauchery. And if I speak out against sin with Scripture as my authority, then by cultural standards, I'm considered intolerant. And that was my next line. Or I'm a bigot. Or I'm hateful. Even though, even though the scriptures have things to say about sin and the church's response to sin. Because again, Christian, the scriptures are your authority. And yet, so many churches, in an effort to be relevant or winsome, have in the name of loving people become accepting of sin. So for example, there are churches in our town and in our state 
and in our nation that champion the homosexual cause in the name of love. So the question, church, is should we love homosexuals who are image bearers of God and fellow, um, fellow sinners in need of grace? Thank you. Yes, we should. Should we, on the other hand, be passive about sin in people's life, regardless of what the sin is? Should we be passive about sin? All right, thank you. Megan Prado said, grace never calls wrong right. But that's what happens when theology that is anchored in the scriptures stops being the church's driving force, stops being the guide. When theology stops being the guide, or when you separate the knowledge of God from the love of God and make everything about your feelings... The whole thing's a mess. We can say, yeah, I know. I know that the Bible says this. I know what the Bible says. But I'd prefer to do it this way. I know what the Bible says. But I'm going to listen to my heart. But when you consider the whole of Scripture, our hearts are fickle. Our hearts lie to us. We sacrifice to our own idols and the idols of our culture in the name of love and completely miss Christ in the process. The way that culture defines love and the way that the Bible defines love are radically different from one another. It is, on the other hand, entirely possible to be a great theologian, to have really good theology anchored in the scriptures and have no love. You know the Bible, and you don't practice grace or mercy. Paul warns against this, too. In 1 Corinthians, he says, this kind of knowledge will puff you up. So if your theology isn't leading you to love for the church and love for your neighbor, and it's just making you a cynical jerk or an angry Calvinist, then your theology isn't rooted in the knowledge of God. So if we're accepting sin in one another's lives without lovingly confronting it, then we aren't being loving. If we expect people to have perfect theology and perfect practice and don't leave room for grace and mercy when we struggle in sin, then we're not being loving. Which leads Paul to this idea of discernment, defined as Holy Spirit wisdom. Knowledge of God leads to discernment. Knowledge of God leads to wisdom. When you have knowledge of God, when you have knowledge of his word, you can then be confident in what is right and what is true, and then in discernment, apply this truth rightly. So here are some ways that you can evaluate if you are pursuing knowledge and discernment in this way. Really simply, here's some questions, some diagnostic questions. Am I valuing knowing Christ above everything else in my life? Am I valuing knowing Christ above everything else in my life? Do I desire to know God more and know more about who God is and know more about his will for my life? Am I in church regularly? 
And does the church I attend teach the Bible faithfully? Am I leveraging my time, talent, and resources to honor the Lord? Am I stewarding my family well? Am I stewarding my dating relationship well? Am I stewarding my singleness well? Am I stewarding my teenage years well? Am I aware of my own sin? Am I practicing confession and repentance? Marita again asked in his Philippians commentary, am I doing good things or am I doing gospel things? Meaning, am I doing moral acts to look a certain way or to feel a certain way or to earn salvation as if that were possible? Or do I desire for God's gospel to go forward on this earth? If the answer to any of those questions I ask is no, and I'm sure there are things on that list that are no's for all of us at some level, right? Grace, grace to you, but repent. Repent of your unbelief. Repent of a casual pursuit of Jesus because he's giving you something way better. So that's the what of the context of Paul's prayer, and that leads him to the why. Going back to my Baptist roots with the three-pointer here. What, why, and how. Why is it good that our love grows? And why is it good that love grows in conjunction with knowledge and discernment? Verse 10 says, so that, let's look at verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So you need knowledge, you need discernment or wisdom in order to know how to apply this love and how to best love others. Paul uses the word here, approve, and this is like a judge in a contest, So I was super cool in college um, and watched a few seasons of American Idol, the OG American Idol, with Simon and Randy and Paul Abdul. Uh, I really only liked the auditions when the people would come in and sing terribly and the judges would make fun of them. (laughs) Um, Randy was my favorite. That's a no for me, dog. Um, So that's kind of what this is. the idea is here, that Paul's trying to convey that there is a proving process. It's like when you are going to make a big purchase, you ought to look at all your options and then decide what's best and wise. That's what you are called to. Because of the knowledge of Christ, coupled with Holy Spirit-given wisdom and discernment, you can know how to love and how to serve one another in wisdom. This is also a call. When Paul says to approve what is excellent, this is yet another appeal to unity within the church. Approve and unite around what is excellent and don't divide over secondary things. It's the cliche of keeping the main thing the main thing. That's what Paul is talking about here. So what is the main thing? It's Jesus. 
It's Christ and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of our souls. It is being secure in our salvation and then living like we have received his grace and mercy for salvation. Paul calls us to this, and Paul calls us then to be pure. Dr. Hansen again defines pure as sincere without hidden motives. So what this means is it's an inward purity It's rooted in authenticity. It's the mark of true Christianity that you are to be true and real and honest even in your sin. And then you are to confess and humble authenticity. And this is a work in the spirit of the spirit of God in you because everything in us will rebel against this. That's purity. And then he says to be blameless. And that's evidence in how our outward actions are. Now, just so we're clear, the gospel isn't behavior modification, but the gospel does motivate our actions. As believers saved by grace through faith in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we should then, Christian, ought to desire to look more like Christ. And while this is a calling on our lives from the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of God, he is not inviting us to do this on our own. The invitation of the gospel isn't to be pure and blameless on your own first, and then Christ will accept you. The invitation from Jesus is to come as you are, and he will make you pure, and he will make you blameless one moment at a time. When we're called into faith, when we're called into salvation, when we're justified by Christ, When Christ becomes our Savior by grace through faith and the work he has done for us to forgive us from our sinful rebellion against him, he gives us purity. He gives us his righteousness. He makes us blameless. And as he grows us, he continues to grow us in holiness and faith and dependency. So our righteousness then continues forever as we are sanctified and made more like Christ because of the cross because of the resurrection where he purchased our forgiveness now and forever. It isn't that you will never sin, but that because we are in him, we are declared excellent. We are approved. We are now seen as pure in Christ because Christ was pure and sacrificed himself for us. Christ the blameless took our blame on himself and endured our punishment, and so now we too are blameless. So we can strive then to live lives worthy of this calling that we have received. It's been said that grace isn't opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We don't have to work to earn God's love. He's given it to us already through himself. So now we just get to walk in it. Paul calls us back in the second time in this section of Scripture to the day of Christ. little Bible study pro tip. Repetition of an idea or a phrase in Scripture means that it's important. So this is the day in which Christ will return and make all things new and perfect us in himself. This is the day in which creation waits for and groans for. This is the day when we will be free from sin once and for all, and we will behold our Savior Jesus face to face, and we will dwell with him as he intended. Again, this is an invitation for you to not just have the gospel be the means of your salvation only. 
but also have the gospel to be the means of your transformation as Christ is motivating you to want to change and be more like him as you await for his return. So I'd ask you to examine your life right now. Right now, in light of the return of Jesus. Are you living in view of that day? The work of the Christian is to make the bride of Christ more beautiful for the coming of their great groom, Jesus. The invitation is to strive for this type of perfection, even as we wait for the return of Jesus, who will perfect us in and through himself. Jesus is going to finish what he started in us, so the invitation then is to fill your life up with him and not seek to satisfy your own sinful desires. So we have the what. Paul wants our love to grow in wisdom and in discernment. We have the why, because it honors Christ when we grow in love and holiness. And so that's going to lead us to the how. How does this all take place? Verse 11, it'll take place when we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It comes through Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have received his forgiveness, your life will be marked by Christian fruitfulness. That is evidenced by Christ in your life. This is coupled with the call to be pure and blameless. Paul is calling us to be a people of godly Christian character. He is calling you to live righteously. If you are a Christian, and there is no discernible fruit in your Christian life, I'd ask you to consider first where your time goes. If you aren't growing in love for God and others Christian, I'd be willing to say that you are likely not spending any time with God, studying his word, getting to know his character, and you aren't pursuing community fully. You may attend church, you may attend group, but are you really investing in one another the way Scripture is calling you to? Are you practicing the one another's of Scripture in your life to love and serve one another? Are you bearing one another's burdens? Are you living in unity with one another? Are you patient with one another? Are you submissive to one another? Are you confessing sin to one another? And here's the rub in all of this. We're called to a body, right? We're called together corporately. We're called to be one together in Christ. But in order to rightly fulfill that calling, we each have to be doing our part. We each have to be doing the important work of growing in holiness and godliness through communion with God on our own. Without intentional time in the word or in prayer, and without living alongside other believers, our growth in Christ then is individually stunted, and our growth in Christ corporately then is, is also stunted. And thankfully, none of this is dependent upon us. All of this is given to us by the work of Jesus to us. 
We are called, we're adopted, we're chosen, we're beloved, we're blameless in him and not because of anything in us. It's only because he loves us. Simply because Christ loves us. And we get to walk alongside others who struggle just like you. We get to live honestly. We get to live vulnerably together as we are trying to honor Christ together. So we then, as people, saved by God's undeserving grace to us, have a calling to bear fruit in him. We have a calling to live a life that is marked by the things of Jesus, living a life that looks like Christ's life, living a life marked by dependence on him, showing that we are indeed in him and in need of him. Good works don't save you. Moral living doesn't save you. But we are called the faithful and obedient service through good works as people called into faith to live on mission for God and to the glory of the Lord. The calling of Jesus on your life for salvation pushes you to more love for God pushes you to more love for the church, and pushes you to more love for others. And this is evidenced by love and service to one another and others. When Christ returns on the day of the Lord, Christ will separate those that are his and those that aren't. He will separate those who have received his forgiveness those that will have received his righteousness that's been transferred to them, those that are a people set apart, pure and blameless and holy, and those that aren't. Which one are you? Which one are you? Are you living a life that suggests that you have been forgiven? Are you forgiving of others? Are you living a life that honors God? And why does that matter? Because the scripture is our authority. And the scriptures call us as Christians to the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is man's chief end? Basically, what is the goal of humanity? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And listen, you can't enjoy God and you can't glorify him when you don't know him. You can't glorify God and enjoy him when you aren't submitted to him. You won't enjoy God and glorify him if you are only ever living to your sin and for yourself. Even if your sin is just ambivalence, you won't enjoy God and you won't glorify him. Psalm 1 paints a picture of this type of commitment that God desires of his people. Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the book of Leviticus. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. To be a fruitful, faithful, 
follower of Jesus, your life looks like Christ's life. You are marked by the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You're marked by repentance. You're marked by love for his word. You're marked by love for his people. So are you marked by this type of commitment to Christ? Are you, Christian, are you bearing godly fruit in your life? And if not, the question is, do you even believe in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? Or are you trying to just be good enough to do enough to earn God's love? Are you marked by confession and repentance of sin? Do you want to honor God with your life? Do you want to grow in your love for him and for the church? And if your answer is yes, praise God, do it. Get some accountability in your life through community and open your Bible and commune with God. Commune with the God of the universe who has paid for your sin, who has loved you with this type of love that he is calling you to. Get some accountability and get to work. I think the first response for all of us is that we need to pray. We need to pray for God to increase our desires for him. Every single one of us can do that. And we need to pray that God will remind us of who he is and who we are in him. We ought to pray that God would grow in us a love for him and a love for one another and then a desire for holiness. And pray that God will remind us often of how great the news of the gospel is for us, that he has adopted us and chosen us, and now we're blameless in him. He's not our angry dad. You, Christian, have been purchased, pardoned, and redeemed, which means you have been declared righteous because of the cross of Jesus through the resurrection. So live like this matters, because it does. You've been purchased at such a high cost, and God's love has been set upon you. Think about where you'd be had Christ not intervened in your life, and let that move you to worship. And then press on towards the goal of knowing Christ and living for him. Let's pray.